Well, good morning, Westridge. Happy Labor Day. Did you notice I'm the only one working? Good to be back with you. This is part two of a three-part series entitled Take a Walk on the Live Side. And if you were here last week or caught it online, you probably picked up on the fact that living is changing. If we're growing, if we're changing, we're living. If we're not, we aren't. And so last week we talked about the time in our life when we run out of change, death, and how we can look forward to that change, not dread it, avoid it, deny it. Um, I'm kind of using as a metaphor change uh, my view from my home office. Uh, I I whined about this last week, about this building being torn down and a new building going up and and obstructing my view. And I got so many uh, heartwarming notes this week from people who really felt sorry for me. Um, that I thought I'd update you. Uh, the one at the top was a week ago Friday. The one at the bottom is Friday. This also serves as a metaphor for certain periods in my life uh, that I look that way. But uh, what we're trying to do is to make sure that we don't have anything obstruct our view of Jesus. Um, I think Jesus is kind of hard to see today, even and maybe especially in some churches. Because too many want to feel good gospel on the intellectual level of a reality TV show. And too many don't want to admit the fact that the gospel is, first of all, discomforting before it's comforting. And it may have been discomforting to talk about the final change, death, last week. And it may be discomforting to talk today about holding everything you enjoy in this world with an open hand because it's going to change someday. But it's worth the initial discomfort because after discomfort comes liberation. And after liberation comes living. Now, since few things are more interesting than people talking about their past surgeries, um, you're in for a real treat today. Um, I've talked about this before. A few years ago, I snapped my Achilles tendon during one of my early midlife crises. Um, I thought I could play basketball in my 40s like I did in my 20s without stretching. And the good news for you is that I'm well beyond my third or fourth midlife crisis. I've already bought and sold a sports car. But uh, the important thing is if you don't stretch that tendon before you exercise, after you're 40, you're at risk of snapping it. Just a little public service announcement for you guys in that situation here. So it turns out the tendon, over the years, gets accustomed to inactivity. It becomes inflexible. It becomes rigid. It becomes stiff. And I can tell you the process of recovery, when you have surgery to repair it as I did, is slow and painful. And so the really big takeaway here is when when you have the chance, it's almost always a good idea to stretch. The same thing can happen to us intellectually. If we stop using our brains, they become inflexible. Anybody getting up and going to work tomorrow with someone who's brain dead? As you get older, maybe like me, you notice that there is this phenomenon which is regretful, but you tend to forget things. And maybe this has happened to you. You're you're talking to someone and you know you know that person. But no matter how hard you try, you can't remember their name. Has that happened to anyone? Yeah. Don't point fingers. Don't point fingers. 
Now, that can be very embarrassing, especially if he or she turns out to be your spouse. (laughs) Have you noticed how our brain elects to remember only the truly useless things? That's why you can no longer do long division, but if you're of a certain age, you can sing the theme song of Beverly Hillbillies verbatim. A man named Jed. Uh, turns out it's hard. It's hard work. That's why not everyone who grows old grows up. It's hard to fight inflexibility in our brain and in our body. And I found the same thing can happen in our spiritual life. If we're not constantly stretching our faith, if we're not constantly learning and growing and being challenged, we can become calcified, fossilized, and petrified. And who wants to be that? And when that happens, our view of Jesus gets out of focus or obstructed or sometimes lost completely. And when that happens, we stop living. That's what's going on in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. After that, the Pharisees and religion scholars came to Jesus all the way from Jerusalem criticizing. By the way, that's what religion scholars do really well, is criticize. Why do your disciples play fast and loose with the rules? But Jesus put it right back on them. Why do you use your rules to play fast and loose with God's commands? God clearly says, respect your father and mother, and anyone denouncing father or mother should be killed. But you, you weasel around that by saying, whoever wants to can say to father and mother, what I owe to you, I've given to God. That can hardly be called respecting a parent. You cancel God's command by your rules. You're frauds. Isaiah's prophecy, if you hit the bullseye, these people make a big show out of saying the right thing, but their heart really isn't in it. They act like they're worshiping me, but they don't mean it. They just use me as a cover for teaching whatever suits their fancy. Now, notice the people who didn't get it when Jesus taught were the religion scholars. Today, they would be the full-time clergy types. And that always bothered me when I was a full-time clergy type. That I thought, you know, I'm, I'm the one at risk. Before I go around beating people over the head with the Bible, I, the Bible says I'm the one who's at risk here. Maybe that's why I sat alone at ministerial meetings, because they didn't want to hear that, you know. But let's look inside first, guys, before we criticize and denounce other people. You only need a superficial reading of the Gospels to tell you that the harshest criticisms from Jesus were directed to those who used religion to oppress other people. And if you've been the victim of that somewhere else, I'm sorry. The people who could have known better, should have known better, didn't. And so Jesus ultimately quotes from the prophet Isaiah, ironically, a book that many of these people he was speaking to had studied intensely and memorized accurately. And he reminds, he reminds us that knowing what the Bible says and following God are sometimes two different things. That's what Isaiah is talking about here. He says, these people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their heart is not in it. They act like they're worshiping me, but they don't mean it. Here's my translation. Religious shows make God sick. 
Now, one of the hallmarks of this kind of religious hypocrisy, which is why we need to confront it head on today, one of the hallmarks of this religious hypocrisy is the adverse reaction to change. And so I want to give you three faith-stretching exercises so you don't snap a spiritual tendon, okay? Stretch number one. God doesn't change. And we're not God. So here's the stretch. You never reach a point in your life where there's nothing left to change. When our faith becomes inflexible, it no longer distinguishes between that that which is essential and changeless and eternally true from that which is always changing, under revision, subject to review. And the result is we become content with what we've always done. We become set in our ways. And when we become set in our ways, something nefarious can happen. Over time, our ways can get equated with God's ways. And when that happens, we can justify just about any behavior, just about any oppression, because we've made it up. And we fool ourselves into thinking that's what God thinks. In extreme and advanced cases like those to whom Jesus is addressing here in Matthew 15, they not only equated their rules with God's, they actually placed their rules above God's. So there's a hierarchy there. And when that happens, we're no longer worshiping God. We're worshiping our cultural preferences and our affinities and our power base. And the Bible has a word for that condition too, but it's not merely unwillingness to change. The word that describes that condition is idolatry. Interesting when you look at the history of Israel, just at a a uh, real high level. Here's the cycle. You see the nation of Israel drifting off into idolatry, worshiping false gods. God sends judgment upon them. And the judgment, interestingly enough, was usually that they were carried away into exile. We call it the diaspora. They were conquered and physically taken away to another land where the customs were different. Almost as if to say to them, you're trying to hold on to the culture you've created and the rules you've placed above me. How do you like this? You're in a culture where you don't control any of it. And that seemed to cure their idolatry for a little while. It was almost as if God was saying in a dramatic way, I never change, but you, you need to constantly change to become what I want you to be. That's spiritual maturity. That's discipleship. That's living. So, you know, it made me wonder this week. If we were taken captive, if we were transported to a foreign hostile land where we didn't speak the language, we didn't understand their religion, their customs were maybe not only unfamiliar to us but offensive to us, and we were dropped down into that context, all we would have left is what the Israelites had left, and that is our faith in a changeless God. No buildings, no budgets, no bylaws, no bulletins, no boards. No personnel, no programs. Everything stripped bare. If our faith in God is dependent on any of those things I just mentioned, it's time for change. 
The essence of our faith is trust in the one who is always calling us to be more than we are. That's change. That's spiritual maturity. That's living. Stretch number two. If you want things to stay the same, things are going to have to change. Here's the stretch. Well, before that, let me read you this passage from Matthew. The, the rest of the story from Matthew 15. Later, his disciples came to him and told him, Did you know how upset the Pharisees were when they heard what you said? See, these, these religious hypocrites, not only do they like to criticize, they like to get indignant when they're told the truth. Jesus shrugged it off. Every tree that wasn't planted by my Father in heaven will be pulled up by its roots. Forget them. They're blind men leading blind men. And when a blind man leads a blind man, they both end up where? In a ditch. And so the stretch for us is open your eyes to change or get used to living in a ditch. Those who prefer to keep things the same for as long as possible in a paradoxical way hasten change. Walking around with our eyes closed, hoping things won't change, only leads us into a ditch. And do I have to tell you, life in a ditch, pretty dramatic change. The more we try to avoid change, the more things change. Look at it in every practical area of your life. You decide to do nothing about your physical condition, and things don't stay the same. They go in the ditch. How about your relationships? You start taking that important someone for granted and the relationship doesn't stay the same, it goes in the ditch. Now we're back to our spiritual life. Change is another word for learning. Jesus calls us to be his disciples. A disciple means being a learner. To resist change is to resist learning because we learn through experiencing change. That's why. The first step in accepting Christ is a real churchy word, but it has a real simple meaning. And the Bible word for it is repent, which simply means change. A change in the direction my life is going. Following Jesus is learning to change in all the right ways. Because until I'm dissatisfied with my life and I recognize I need a new master, I'll not experience the positive change of receiving eternal life. So while we have the choice about the direction in which we travel, eyes open toward freedom, eyes closed toward the ditch, what we don't have a choice about is whether or not we'll change. Movement is not optional. Sometimes... We ask God to show us His will. But because of our unwillingness to change, it's like a train saying, please steer me down the tracks. What for? The tracks are already laid. There's only one way to go. And what I find in too many cases, when we want to know God's will for our lives, is that we've already laid the tracks that we want our lives to follow. And when we say, God, show me your will, what we really mean is, God, steer me down the tracks that I've already laid. Most of the time, I find I need to pull up the tracks that I've laid 
and surrender my will and say, I'll do whatever, whenever, wherever, Lord. Got one final stretch for you. God's eternal. The culture I create and consume is not. And so the stretch is this. Hold your cultural preferences, even your religious cultural preferences, with an open palm because that's all they are. Your preferences. All the cultural trappings we've become accustomed to in this country, especially the religious ones, are not going to last. The clothes we wear, the food we eat, the language that's spoken, the work we do, the music we listen to, the buildings we live in and worship in, not eternal. When you, uh, when you get to be 90 years of age, you know you've seen a lot of change. And so, when I make my daily call to my 90-year-old father, uh, he's got just a few topics you know, that we can converse about. And one of the repeating topics is his lamenting the fact that there are no family-style restaurants in the small Kansas town where he lives. Now, when he says family-style restaurant, restaurant, he's got a very narrow definition of that. By that he means a restaurant that serves roast beef, mashed potatoes and gravy, and green beans. That's the yardstick for a family-style restaurant in his 90-year-old brain. Now, if he's talking about breakfast, it also means something very specific. Biscuits and gravy with unlimited pork products and byproducts. He'll note to me on the phone frequently that there are Chinese and Mexican restaurants in his little town. Why can't we have an American restaurant? You see, he instinctively knows something has changed. He's just not sure why. What he knows is he doesn't like the change. What he doesn't know is the broader demographic shift going on in the Midwest and that small Midwestern towns are dying. And for a lot of people, that's an unwelcome change. Change in our religious traditions are hard too. We had an interesting church experience this summer. We, we were invited to attend um, an African-American church that's been there in Chicago for 130 years. It's actually just a few blocks north of the United Center. It's a stately old church building. And the auditorium where the services are held are on the second floor, so you actually have to climb stairs to get to the service. What made this Sunday interesting is that they were sharing their service with a new church starting in the neighborhood. Because guess what? The neighborhood is changing. And the people this church reached 130 years ago, they aren't in the neighborhood anymore. Many of the older members of this church no doubt came to Chicago during the Great Migration from the Mississippi Delta and other points south into Chicago. They knew what the word sharecropper meant. And so the contrast was striking. It was as if I was watching watching in live time this demographic and generational turn that was forever. The host church uh, had members who were almost entirely African American. They wore suits and dresses. The ushers wore white gloves and they sported badges that said member 
just so you'd know the real ushers from fake ones. And they had one really lively organ player, and they had a great gospel choir, and I loved it because that's my favorite kind of music. And when they did greeting time, it wasn't a polite shake of the hands with people standing around you like we do. It was a roam around the entire room, hug as many people as you can, no set time for it either. When the last person was finished and got back to their seat, that's when welcome time was over. The culture of the new church, dramatically different. They were multi and interracial, mostly 20-somethings. They wore jeans with shirt tails out. And when it came time for them to provide the music, guitars, drums, individual performers. Now I've got two test questions for you. Just giving you a case study. First question is, which church was right? Now, if you're a Pharisee and a full-time religion scholar, the answer is, whichever one I'm in charge of. Because it's all about the power base, baby. The Jesus answer is, it's not a question of right or wrong, just different cultural expressions. Question number two. Which cultural expression of the two is eternal? And the answer is, Neither. Religious hypocrites like the one Jesus talked to in our text and like the ones you may talk to tomorrow morning, they value their power and their preferences over serving God. We follow Jesus. We come alive when we value learning to risk and risking to learn instead of playing it safe. When we value being creative instead of jumping in line like blind people following blind people. When we value helping people get out of a ditch so they can live instead of creating more rules to keep them in the ditch. Jesus is the one about whom it is said is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. And he's the one who promises me I don't have to be the same tomorrow as I was yesterday or I am today. That's good news. That's the gospel. So, I'm going to pray it again. God, I've run out of change. You're going to have to break me into little pieces and rebuild me.